Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a fiery scene caused by a motorist speeding the wrong way down an interstate. Was it a deliberate act or the actions of someone with a mental illness? Regardless, five promising young people lost their lives. Welcome to episode 17 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. At around 11.45pm on the night of October 8th, 2016, Several panicked calls came into Vermont State Police Dispatch Center reporting that a pickup truck was driving along Interstate 89 at high speed in the wrong direction. Williston police officer Eric Shepard heard the report over his radio and was on his way, driving north on Interstate 89 in the path of the dangerous driver. Further down the interstate, the pickup truck was reaching speeds of over 80 miles per hour. The headlights glared through the windscreens of oncoming drivers who had to swerve to avoid the Toyota Tacoma. A number of drivers had pulled over to the side of the road to safely call 911, but suddenly the pickup slammed into a Volkswagen Jetta, sending it crashing into the median in the middle of the highway. Officer Shepard's radio sounded again, this time relaying the report of a crash. He sped towards it, but it was too late. Two nurses had been travelling when they came upon the crash. They ran to help and spotted a young girl on the grass verge by a burning car. 
Officer Shepard arrived at the same time. He quickly pulled his cruiser over to the side of the road. The flashing lights cast a blue glow on the scene. Debris was scattered on the tarmac. The pickup truck was still near the centre line where the impact had occurred. The jetter was in flames at the median. Several cars had been pulled over with their hazard lights on to warn other drivers to slow down or stop. Keith Porter had been driving back from a birthday party with his wife and young sons when he witnessed the crash. He went over to the driver of the Toyota Tacoma, who had exited the driver's side door and was watching the chaos around him. As Porter came up to the driver, they remarked that they did not know what had happened and must have lost control. Officer Shepard took a fire extinguisher from his cruiser and raced towards the burning car. As he tried to douse the flames, he noticed his police car had moved from where he left it. It was being driven away from the scene. Over the radio, he tried to communicate with a person behind the wheel, asking who was in his car. is attending to the young female who was found on the grass tried to move her away from the blazing car, while Officer Shepard reached inside the vehicle to try and unlock the doors. The heat was intense, making it too hot for him to open. He called to the four young passengers trapped inside by banging on the windows and pleading with them to get out. Sergeant Brian Claffey had heard Officer Shepard reporting his cruiser stolen over the radio and began to pursue the vehicle along I-89. Suddenly the cruiser slammed to a halt and turned around, driving the wrong way at high speed towards the scene of the crash. Sergeant Claffey rushed to alert oncoming vehicles and pulled his cruiser over in the breakdown lane to try and set spikes out but everything was happening so fast, and he did not have time. The stolen cruiser sped towards him at over 100 miles per hour. So close, he later said, I could feel the wind going by. Sergeant Claffey quickly radioed Officer Shepard to warn him that his car was coming back at high speed. A crowd had gathered at the scene, watching in horror as nurses tried to resuscitate the girl who had been ejected from the jetta. Paul Swan had been driving home from work when he pulled over to try and help. Speaking with WCAX-TV, he said that there was debris all across the road and he could hear people screaming and yelling. Another officer had arrived at the scene with an automated external defibrillator. They tried to shock the girl's heart into a rhythm, but it was unsuccessful. She was pronounced dead. 
The people watching were jolted back into reality when Officer Shepard screamed out for everyone to get off the interstate. The headlights of the cruiser lit up the road as people ran to their cars. Some jumped over the barrier and ran towards the woods at the side of the road in a panic. Others who knew they did not have time to run braced themselves for impact. The police cruiser slammed into the pickup truck, sending it and debris flying towards surrounding cars, striking one vehicle with such velocity that it ended up on its side. The driver in the patrol car was ejected from the driver's side window and landed on the road. Officer Shepard ran to the man who lay on the ground and pointed his gun at him, until Trooper Bradley Miller arrived and placed the suspect in handcuffs. It was the same man who had crashed the pickup truck. The driver was clearly injured, as he had just been in two high-speed collisions, so other medical professionals who were at the scene came to try and assess his condition. When he was asked his name, the driver replied, Stephen Burgoyne. Officers were asked to remove the man's handcuffs so medics could check his blood pressure. And when they did, the suspect tried to roll away and get up. But he was quickly handcuffed again and taken to the University of Vermont Medical Center in an ambulance. There was nothing that could be done for the occupants of the car that had burst into flames. Their bodies were taken to the medical examiner's office to be identified. Members of the Williston Fire Brigade who had attended the crash site called it, quote, the most horrific scene they had seen in their 10 to 15 years. Senior firefighter Prescott Nadeau said, We go through hundreds of hours of training, but no amount of training can prepare you for what those firefighters saw. Officers from the Vermont State Police began to analyse the crash scene. There were no skid marks from the pickup truck, indicating that Burgoyne had not applied the brakes before he slammed his Toyota Tacoma into the Volkswagen Jetta. The cars were taken away from the scene so crash reconstruction experts could analyse the data in order to understand what had happened. Eight people in ten other vehicles had been injured when the stolen police cruiser collided with the wrecked pickup truck. They were taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The five young people travelling in the Jetta were lifelong friends. They were identified as 16-year-old Mary Harris of Moortown, 16-year-old Cyrus Shaw of Moortown, 16-year-old Liam Hale of Faston, 15-year-old Janie Cozzy of Faston, and 16-year-old Eli Brookins of Waterbury. A group of teenagers were travelling home from a concert in Burlington. Mary Cyrus, Liam and Eli were students at Harwood Union School, while Janie attended Kimball Union Academy. Following news of the crash, Principal Amy Rex of Harwood Union School released a statement that read, 
This is an unprecedented tragedy. We have suffered a tremendous loss. These students were vibrant members of our school community, actively involved and all with a promise for a bright future. Co-principal Lisa Atwood said of the victims' families and friends, They're just trying to put one foot in front of the other and process it. Our communities will come together to support them as well as our students and figure it out together. The school was due to be closed on the following Monday, but staff decided to open its doors to provide support to those who needed it with the help of the Washington County Mental Health Services and the Northeastern Family Institute. On Monday evening, a vigil was also held on the Harwood Union High School soccer field. Over a thousand pupils, teachers and parents huddled together to light heart-shaped sky lanterns, which they released in remembrance. The vigil had been planned by Patrick McHugh, whose daughter was friends with the victims. During the vigil, he stated... I think it's with a collective broken heart that we're all here tonight. Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin ordered flags to be flown half-staff in honour of the five students. In a statement, he said, The loss of five teens in such a senseless tragedy is unimaginable and heartbreaking. Vermont is a community, and today we join the Harwood Union family and share the sadness and loss of the families and friends of these teens. My deepest sympathies are with their loved ones. A number of the victims' relatives took part in the vigil, and Mary Harris's uncle, Darrell Mays, encouraged people not to dwell on their anger. Speaking of the man responsible, he stated... Obviously, this person has had one hell of a troubled life. Vengeance does no good. Anger will only lead to violence. Think of these families, these children, our communities, and let's be bigger than the bad guys. Mary's uncle also urged the young people in attendance to live their lives well to one of those who had died and to be thankful for their friends. Mary Harris was described by her family as kind, bright and beautiful. She wanted to help people and to become a doctor. Cyrus Shaw had lived close to Mary and was remembered as being well-liked and respected by his friends, classmates and teachers. He was a great athlete and an honour student. Eli Brookings' father, Bob, would later say that his son taught him what it meant to be a father and a man. Eli's mother, Colleen, said that she would not get to see who her son would have become. Liam Hale's mother, Sue, spoke about the loss of her son and how he would miss so many milestones like road trips, graduations, weddings and having children of his own. Janie Cozzi, who was described on the website for the foundation set up in her memory, as being a vibrant child who yearned to create a positive change in the world around her. The halls were silent when classes resumed the day after the vigil, 
as the students mourned. Throughout the day, students wrote notes to their classmates who were killed in the crash and placed those notes on tables alongside flowers, photographs, a signed soccer ball and athletic jerseys. All of the victims had been massive soccer fans and played for the teams in school. Pupils and teachers throughout Addison County wore black and gold, which are the school colours of Harwood Union High School. A few weeks later, a celebration of life event was held in memory of the victims at the school. Pupils, teachers and parents all spoke fondly of the friends that they had lost. Sin Wolf recalled how he and Eli Brookins had become friends in the fourth grade. He reminisced about how they would spend almost every weekend together on a nearby mountain. They'd learned to ski in an afternoon school program. Sin spoke of a time when they were skiing down a closed trail because the snow was perfect. When they got to the bottom, he said three ski patrol members were waiting for them. Their parents were called and their ski passes were taken away from them. But later that night, their parents handed them back. He laughed while telling the crowd that they both thought they were badasses for pulling it off. Anna Jarecki spoke about Janie Cozzi. She said they were the best of friends especially before Janie moved to Kimball Union Academy. She recalled how she spent most of her days with Janie. On weekend mornings, Janie's mother would drop her off at Anna's home before she went to work. Janie would let herself in and climb into bed next to Anna and fall asleep. Anna described Janie as the kind of friend she went to for advice. Anna said, I know she'd be telling all of us here to keep her in our hearts and minds and try to move forward. She'd hate to see us go through our days sad and broken just because she's not here. Anna Fortier said that she was lucky to spend so much time with Liam Hale. She spoke of how she had known the 16-year-old for most of her life, and they both shared a passion for fashion and cars. Anna loved horses and Liam loved riding bikes. She fondly spoke about how often he laughed about the fact that they both like sit-down sports, because who wants to stand for that long? Anna said that Liam always had a way to make people laugh. He was the joker of the group, and always had something funny to do or something funny to say, making everybody erupt into laughter. Lauren Green had been at the same concert as the victims that night. Lauren was best friends with Mary Harris. Since preschool, Lauren had known her and they often joked that they were twins. Mary was the friend Lauren always went to for advice. A sister she never had. At the service, Lauren said that the five teenagers could not have had a better night and she felt lucky that she got to attend the concert with them. She reminisced about how they spent the night dancing and singing. 
Lauren went on to say that she could have spoken about how amazing Mary Hull was for hours on end, but said that everybody in attendance probably already knew that. Lauren described Mary as friendly, sweet and extremely outgoing. Mourners also heard from Eli Hammond, who remembered Cyrus Shaw as one of his best friends. He said that Cyrus's death had left a hole in his heart and he was upset that he never got to say goodbye. Eli went on to say that he felt fortunate to have had Cyrus as such a good friend. He remembered how they went to Martha's vineyard when they were much younger and felt like they were on top of the world. Eli said, It was in these moments that I knew I had a best friend for life. The memorial service ended with a firework display to commemorate the stolen lives of the teenagers. Stephen Burgoyne was hospitalised following the crashes and investigators were trying to figure out what led him to drive the wrong way on I-89 not just once, but twice. It emerged after some light digging that Burgoyne had been facing a domestic assault charge at the time. In May earlier that same year, Burgoyne hit his girlfriend Danilla Lawrence in the head and threatened to throw her down the stairs. According to the arrest report, when Anilla tried to leave Burgoyne with their two-year-old child, Burgoyne got into the vehicle and started to shout that he wanted to keep their child. He pushed Anilla and climbed into the driver's seat. Burgoyne hit Anilla in the head and began pulling on the lanyard around her neck. Burgoyne had threatened Anilla by saying that he would drive to a place where there was no cell phone reception and the police would not be able to respond. She said that they drove around for a while before he eventually calmed down and drove them home. When Burgoyne got in the shower back at home, Anilla left with their child and went straight to Williston Police Station. She informed the police that a very similar incident happened two years prior when the couple lived in Massachusetts. In the police report, Anilla said that she often suffered from headaches from all of the times Burgoyne had pulled her by the hair. After the attack on Anilla, Burgoyne was released on conditions that he had no contact with her. Anilla was granted custody of their daughter. According to Anilla Lawrence, Stephen Burgoyne was often angry and had severe mood swings. She said that their relationship had changed after the birth of their daughter in February 2015. Anilla had told the police, When he gets in these mood swings, he does not think clearly and has no regard for those around him, even loved ones. When Stephen is in these moods, it is usually because he ran out of marijuana, which he used to stabilise his mood swings. It was always very evident when he was out of marijuana, as he would be more angry and violent during those times. Stephen Burgoyne had also faced prior charges for driving under the influence and domestic assault. 
He was due to appear in court in November for both the child support hearing and the domestic assault charges. It became clear by Stephen Burgoyne's behaviour that the crash on I-89 had most likely not been an accident. During a press briefing, Chittenden County Prosecutor T.J. Donovan was asked if he believed that Burgoyne had been attempting to end his life. Donovan replied that he would not be classifying what happened on Interstate 89 as an accident and revealed no more information at the time. One of Burgoyne's best friends spoke with the media and said that Burgoyne had suffered from anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, which had stemmed from childhood trauma. They also divulged that Stephen Burgoyne may have had Lyme disease. According to Asima Kosobik, she had known Burgoyne for eight years prior to the incident and she heard that he was responsible for the deadly crash. She initially did not believe it. Seema would not elaborate any further on what the childhood trauma entailed, but said that Burgoyne had spoken with her about it in the past. Burgoyne was supposedly a regular guy, who had depended heavily on his friends because he had no family. She added that Burgoyne had grown up without a mother and his father and grandmother had died a few years earlier within a short space of time. Seema's opinion was that Burgoyne had many problems and his mood had darkened over the past several months. However, she said that she and her husband had never once heard Burgoyne say or do anything suicidal. Outside of the domestic assault charge, Asima said she was not aware of any violent behaviour. According to one of the first officers who had arrived on the scene, he had known Burgoyne from the previous domestic assault case. Burgoyne said that he had suffered from PTSD. Stephen Burgoyne was an employee of Lake Champlain Chocolates, but just the day before the crash he quit his job. He told his manager that he was sick and needed a job that paid more money. Court documents were made public and they showed that Burgoyne had gone to the emergency room less than 24 hours before the crash and was referred to the Howard Centre. The centre provides crisis and counselling services and holds roughly a $90 million state contract to provide mental health resources. However, Stephen Burgoyne was never screened there. A Howard Centre spokesperson said they were cooperating with the investigation, but an affidavit was filed, and it cast doubt on whether Howard Centre had actually been contacted. When this was discovered, speculation was rife that Burgoyne had slipped through the cracks of Vermont's mental health care system. State Attorney Donovan released a statement and said they were trying to get clarification on the issue and explained that they would update the case when possible. According to Frank Reed, the Commissioner of the Vermont Department of Mental Health, policies and procedures regarding mental health are carried out from hospital to hospital across the state. If someone went to hospital and were deemed to be an immediate threat to themselves or to others, 
screening could trigger a court process for involuntary hospitalisation, but seemingly this did not happen with Burgoyne. If the issue was not considered serious, it could result in referral for a screening. It is up to the medical provider to determine what steps are taken next. According to Jack McCulloch, director of Vermont Legal Aid's Mental Health Law Project, one of the most significant issues within Vermont's mental health treatment system was the lack of resources at community level. McCulloch said that a shortage of services meant that numerous people with mental health issues had difficulty finding support until their case is considered a serious level. At that point, they are hospitalised. Shortly thereafter, the Howard Centre confirmed that they had never been contacted to evaluate Stephen Burgoyne. They said that Burgoyne was not a client and that no organisation had sent them a referral on his behalf. The investigation into the case was still underway. One avenue investigators continued to explore was what happened when Burgoyne went into the emergency room a day before the crash. Stephen Burgoyne's condition in the hospital had been upgraded from critical to good. He was ordered to be arraigned several days later. Burgoyne was wheeled into a conference room at the University of Vermont Medical Center where he was asked how he pleaded to the charges against him. Five counts of second-degree murder and two charges relating to his actions of stealing the police cruiser and crashing it into the first scene. During the hearing, Prosecutor Donovan said that Burgoyne had displayed a wanton disregard for human life as he drove around five miles the wrong way. The prosecutor explained that Burgoyne had been speeding around 79 miles per hour when he hit the teenager's car, and then 107 miles per hour when he crashed a second time and hit the other vehicles with the patrol car he had stolen. Investigators were still waiting for the results of toxicology tests. According to court documents, Burgoyne had been facing foreclosure and had received a shut-off notice from the gas company, as well as facing a domestic abuse charge and a custody dispute. The judge ordered a competency hearing to determine whether Stephen Burgoyne was fit to stand trial. On October 21st, Stephen Burgoyne left the hospital and was moved to a state prison in Springfield. By this point, 20 investigators were working on the case. They had heard from around 60 witnesses and were attempting to recreate the crash as well as the timeline leading up to it. They continued to assess things such as terrain and the condition of the other cars that were involved. Officers also needed to look at the role speed played in the crash. Court documents were released which showed that the first officer on the scene had speculated that Burgoyne may have been under the influence of alcohol and drugs when the crash occurred. According to trooper Bradley Miller, Burgoyne was extremely disorientated at the crash scene and was initially unable to inform the trooper of his name. 
However, Prosecutor Donovan had said that the police had no evidence that Stephen Burgoyne was under the influence at the time. Just the following day, some of the findings of the toxicology report were released. It revealed strong evidence of marijuana in Burgoyne's system during the crash. A drug is illegal in Vermont for any amount of cannabis to be found in a driver's system. The toxicology report had still not been made public, but it was stated that Burgoyne had 10 nanograms of THC in his blood system eight hours after the crash. This was twice the legal driving limit in Colorado where recreational marijuana is legal. This would add fuel to the already ongoing debate over whether marijuana should be legalised in Vermont. According to Representative Ben Joseph, a former Superior Court judge, legalisation would expand ready access to marijuana, which he said would increase highway crashes. Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman strongly disagreed. Zuckerman stated it was not that simple. Burgoyne had opioid fentanyl and anti-anxiety prescription drug benzodiazepine in his system at the time of the crash and had sought help for his mental health. Governor Zuckerman added, There's scant evidence to show that cannabis consumption alone leads to increased crash problems. The marijuana bill was signed into law in Vermont in January of 2018 which meant in July of that year, Vermonters would be allowed to possess and grow marijuana for recreational purposes. Afterwards, it was announced that Stephen Burgoyne had been scheduled for an evaluation of his mental fitness to stand trial. His defence attorney, Robert Catums, had requested the competency evaluations but had not stated whether he would raise competency or insanity as a defence. The evaluation was scheduled for December 1st at Southern State Correctional Facility. The examination would determine that Burgoyne was competent to stand trial. Stephen Burgoyne was next in court for a hearing addressing whether his daughter and her mother Anilla would be able to visit him in prison. He had been ordered to have no contact with Anilla after the domestic assault charge. Still, according to attorney Catums, Anilla had agreed to vacate a relief from abuse order so that their daughter could visit him with herself present. Prosecutors opposed the request because Anila was to be a witness in the upcoming murder trial. According to Deputy State's Attorney Amy Griffin, any openings for tainting of evidence or any discussion of the case is completely inappropriate in the state's eyes. Later that month, it was announced that Burgoyne had withdrawn his request to allow his daughter to visit him in prison. Instead, however, his lawyers said that an agreement had been reached with the prosecution, wherein Burgoyne could have contact over the phone with his daughter and Anilla. Under these revised conditions, Burgoyne was forbidden from speaking about any facts regarding the crash or the domestic assault charge. 
Moreover, prosecutors would be able to obtain copies of the phone conversations, which would be recorded by the Vermont Corrections Department. In October 2017, it was the one-year anniversary of the crash. The community had truly kept the teenagers alive in memory. Now they wanted something permanent to commemorate the lives lost. Students and teachers at Harwood Union High School put up a gazebo. They dedicated it to Mary Cyrus, Liam, Eli and Janie. At the dedication ceremony, school board chair David Goodman said, Celebrating life is what this gazebo is all about. It's a gathering place, a spot to hang out, to make music, to laugh and cry, to be together. Out of something sad, we've made something beautiful. I can't think of a better way for the class of 2018 to honour the spirit of these five amazing friends, now and for future generations. The school was an inspiration in how an educational institution should deal with such a tragedy. While the year had passed, the staff and pupils continued their healing process. Resources were still available in the form of counsellors and therapy dogs. Additionally, they still had forums for parents and wellness activities. It was hoped that the case would be ready to go to trial in February 2018. However, shortly after the one-year anniversary, it was announced that it would be closer to spring. Defence attorney Katams appeared in court... He said that there were potentially 50 depositions of police officers that still needed to be taken and there were over 100 potential witnesses. In March, it was announced that Stephen Burgoyne's defence team were planning an insanity defence. His lawyer filed court documents indicating that Burgoyne would be pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Shortly after the plea was entered, Burgoyne's attorneys filed documents requesting that the trial be moved. They argued that pre-trial publicity would make a fair trial impossible. According to attorney Katams, the media coverage had been widespread and continuous, and it had created a bias against Burgoyne. The judge replied that he needed to see actual evidence of prejudice before deciding whether the trial should be moved. He gave the defence more time to prove what they were arguing, but ultimately the judge would decide that they did not need to relocate the proceedings. He stated, Chittenden County offers that largest pool of jurors from which a panel can be selected in the state. Given the statewide nature of the news coverage alleged by the defendant to be prejudicial, this fact further supports the court finding that a change of venue is unwarranted. The case was finally ready to head for trial in May 2019. 
Family members and friends of the victims packed into the Chittenden County Superior Criminal Court in Burlington. Stephen McGoin was led into the courtroom, where he quietly sat at the defence table and made little eye contact with the jury who were there to decide his fate. During opening statements, defence attorney Robert Catons told the jury that Burgoyne was psychotic and delusional at the time of the crash, and therefore legally insane. He acknowledged that Burgoyne was driving the car that caused the crash, but said that the defendant was totally out of his mind at the time. Catons explained that he would be presenting evidence to corroborate this claim. This trial, however... It's not about whether or not Stephen Burgoyne drove his truck the wrong way on 89 and hit the jet and killed him. It did. That's the hard truth. This trial is about why it happened. What was going on in Stephen Burgoyne's head on that tragic night back in October of 2016? Why in the world would he do such a Attorney K. Timms went on to claim that in the days leading up to the crash, Burgoyne believed he was on a secret mission. Still, that mission ended in tragedy when the car he was driving slammed into the vehicle carrying Mary Harris, Cyrus Shaw, Liam Hale, Janie Cozzi and Eli Brookins. The defence attorney told the jury that he would show that Burgoyne's life had been deteriorating in the lead-up to the crash. Burgoyne had not been sleeping and believed that some kind of government agency had been trying to connect with him through the internet, his cell phone, and through his vehicle's radio. Burgoyne claimed that he got out of his vehicle after crashing into the teenager's car. Approaching the crash site, Burgoyne supposedly believed that what he was looking at was not the bodies of teenagers, but instead mannequins with breathing apparatus. According to attorney Catums, this belief explained Burgoyne's attempt to flee from the scene in the patrol vehicle which he stole. Deputy Chittenden County State's Attorney Susan Hardin refuted the defence attorney's claims that Burgoyne was legally insane. She explained that mental health experts had different opinions on Burgoyne's psychological state at the time of the crash, and said that while Burgoyne certainly was troubled, he would meet the legal definition of being sane. The state's attorney painted a picture of Burgoyne as being in a rage over his financial problems and the child custody dispute he was going through when he purposefully crashed into other vehicles. You've heard that he's raised the insanity defense, claiming that he was insane at the time that he committed these offenses, claiming that he had a mental disease or defect. And as a result of that mental disease or defect... He was unable to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or he was unable to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen, as you're listening to all of the evidence. Think about what he did before, during, and after these crashes. 
Attorney Hardin said that when Burgoyne went to the University of Vermont Medical Center before the crash, he had not talked about paranoid thoughts or hallucinations, but instead he spoke about the stress and anxiety he had been experiencing. Keith Porter was called by the prosecution. He was one of the first witnesses at the crash scene. He said that he approached Stephen Burgoyne, who by this point was standing outside of his vehicle. According to the witness, Burgoyne stated, I don't know what happened. I just lost control. Keith Porter described to the jury how, after this brief conversation, he ran over to the police officer who had now arrived on the scene to see if there was anything he could do to assist. Moments later, he saw Burgoyne steal the officer's patrol vehicle and come speeding towards him. Keith Porter told the jury, I expected not to survive. I remember hoping it would be quick. Susan Janes, a nurse practitioner, took the jury through her experience of that day. So we were traveling uh, southbound on Route 89, and as we approached French Hill, we saw um, just out of the blue a big black piece, looked like a piece of a vehicle, and we knew that we were coming upon something. We also could see up ahead of us a couple of cars that had stopped, so we saw some brake lights up ahead, and... um, This is one of the many memories of that night that go in slow motion, even though it happened in a second. We swerved to avoid that piece, big piece of debris. We got into another chunk of debris, had to swerve the next way. Then in front of us was a vehicle across the road. We had to swerve to get around that. And then beyond that, we saw another vehicle down in the median on fire. When you say we, who was with you? My partner, Roger Klein. Susan Janes drove up to the crash scene and went down the embankment where the teenager's vehicle had come to a stop. She said that she offered aid to Mary, who had been ejected from the car. Despite her best efforts, however, she could not resuscitate Mary. Meanwhile, the doors to the vehicle with the teenagers inside could not be opened and by this point the car was in flames. I mean, it looked like a war zone. It looked like an Armageddon. It looked like, you know, things had blown up. Um, There was debris everywhere. There was a, a car, another car on fire. There was a car upside down on outside of the breakdown lane. There was just carnage. There was just stuff everywhere. Did you, um, did you go and talk to any of the people who were there up on the interstate? So I didn't, uh, I did not. I followed the uh, firefighter. He went to check, <clears throat> he told me to stay up above while he checked a vehicle that was turned over. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't, I never saw him again. And I looked around and there were emergency vehicles. There were other responders there. EMS was there and I, I really felt like there wasn't really a place for me. I didn't see a place I could fit in. Williston Police Officer Eric Shepard was the first officer to respond to the crash. He told the jury that he had desperately attempted to rescue the teenagers stuck in the burning vehicle. 
The courtroom fell silent as the officer said. I tried banging on the windows. I was trying to yell, get out, get out, get out. He said that the fire was far too hot and the teenagers would not respond. Officer Shepard described the moment Burgoyne rammed into his own car. As the two vehicles collided, time slowed. Time slowed to almost nothing. I actually watched the operator get ejected out of the driver's side window. It was something that will stick with me. That was a very bizarre thing to watch. Shepard said that he approached Stephen Burgoyne who was lying on the ground. He first ordered Burgoyne to remain still before demanding that the suspect show him his hands. Burgoyne complied. Following the officer's testimony, video from the dash cam of the patrol vehicle that Burgoyne had stolen was presented to the jury. It showed him making a U-turn heading back north, driving again on the wrong side of the interstate. Burgoyne then slammed the speeding patrol car into vehicles that were piled over to offer aid at the first crash site. Burgoyne additionally crashed into his own damaged Toyota Tacoma. Williston Police Sergeant Brian Claffey testified about the crash. He said, I had never seen anything like that before. Nothing even close. So that was pretty jarring. Michael Sorensen, who had recently retired from the Vermont State Police, testified that he had reconstructed the crash as part of the investigation. He said that the evidence showed that moments before the impact, the teenagers had slowed down. According to Sorensen, this indicated that they saw something they were concerned about. Sergeant Owen Ballinger next took the stand to take jurors through photographs of the damage to Burgoyne's car, as well as the charred remains of the teenager's vehicle. Ballinger detailed his examination of the wreckage and stated that the crash was an offset head-on collision, meaning that it was not entirely straight. He said that the vehicles rotated and then separated with the teenager's vehicle rolling over and landing on its wheels. Sergeant Ballinger also testified that he found no evidence of skid marks which proved that Stephen Burgoyne did not try to brake before his car collided with others. Dr Elizabeth Bundock, the state's deputy chief medical examiner, testified that Mary Harris was recognised at the scene while others had to be identified by dental records. Mary was the only one to be ejected from the vehicle. Dr. Bundock described how all of the teenagers had sustained blunt trauma injuries and their manner of death was homicide. Following all of the state's witnesses, it was now the defence's turn to present their own evidence. However, attorney Robert Catums asked the judge to enter a judgment of acquittal for his client, stating that the state's case did not present any evidence to explain Burgoyne's actions in the crash. 
Natums argued it would take speculation and conjecture for the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Burgoyne's actions would constitute a second-degree murder. Judge Kevin Griffin denied the motion, and the case proceeded. Burgoyne's former partner and the mother of his daughter was the next to testify. Anilla Lawrence told the jury that Burgoyne had severe mood swings and recounted a story of when Burgoyne drove around with her and their daughter in the car, threatening them. Anilla quoted Burgoyne as saying, We can all just die in the pond. Anilla said that Burgoyne had been driving erratically and he only stopped when she agreed to 50-50 custody of their daughter. Uh, came outside and started trying to pull us out of the car and I had my work lanyard on and pulling that and because uh, of the the, the t- type of car I have the key doesn't have to be in anything there's nowhere to put the key just push start he was able to take the car with me in the back seat and my daughter and what happened? Uh, I couldn't even buckle her in her car seat. Uh, I was screaming and upset. Uh, about custody stuff. And, and just kept driving and... I don't even remember how long it was. And uh, towards the end, to, 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 to drive us into a pond. And, uh, that's, that's what I just verbally agreed to, 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 uh, to, uh, to 50-50 custody so that we could just go home. And then I, he got in the shower and I took my daughter and I left. Anilla Lawrence described how Stephen Burgoyne's behaviour was in stark contrast to how he behaved when they started their relationship. Between 2008 and 2013, Burgoyne conducted himself differently. They'd purchased a condo and frequently went on vacation together. And you describe him as um, as happy during this period. Do you ever see a, a change in Mr. Burgoyne? After that, yeah, got a little tricky with being with the pregnancy, and not that it was a hard pregnancy, just work and such, and tight finances. Okay, and what was the change you saw in Mr. Burgoyne? Um, would just get really frustrated about all the, the finances and stuff and get angry about it. Nilla Lawrence said that after the birth of her daughter, she had spoken with Burgoyne about getting married and having two weddings, one which would be in Massachusetts where Burgoyne's grandmother lived and the other in Vermont. Anilla detailed how the wedding in Vermont was planned for the ponds in Bolton Valley, 
but one day Burgoyne randomly stated that he did not want anybody to attend the ceremony. Later that night he called around the guests, including the bridesmaids and the ushers, and told them they were not invited. Stephen Burgoyne became depressed. Anilla testified that he would stay up late talking on the phone or browsing the internet. She said that he developed intense mood swings and would become much angrier about money issues and shut off notices from utility companies. Burgoyne often smoked marijuana, but had stopped drinking. Had he stopped drinking alcohol? Yes. When did he stop drinking alcohol? July 27, 2013. Okay, why do you remember that date? It's my birthday. Um, and did he use um, other substances? Marijuana. Okay. Um, how much marijuana would he smoke? I, I don't know. I've, I don't understand the, that type of stuff. Okay. But was it a lot or a little? or? I, I don't know what a lot or a little would necessarily be. Did you notice any change in Mr. Burgoyne after he stopped drinking? No, he's pretty proud of himself for stopping. At one point their doctor had suggested that Stephen Burgoyne begin taking antidepressants, but Burgoyne did not want to. Yeah, he had talked to our doctor about being depressed. And was he prescribed any medication, do you know? Uh, she suggested antidepressants, but he didn't want them. Okay. Do you know why Mr. Burgoyne didn't want the antidepressants? Um, at the time, he just didn't want to take any prescription medication like that. Do you know why? Um, he had seen, he, he's lost friends and stuff to drug overdoses and such and did not want to ever be addicted to anything like that. Under cross-examination by the prosecution, Anilla Lawrence admitted that Stephen Burgoyne had never spoken to her about being on some kind of secret mission or about any delusions he was having. One of the first responders on the scene was Shannon Roberto of St. Michael's College Rescue. She was called by the defence to testify in relation to Burgoyne's demeanour at the crash site. Um, when he was awake and talking to me, besides the phrases that I already said, um, he seemed to be confusing me for someone else. Um, and he said things like, did you dye your hair? <clears throat> or something about me having children. Um, he said, like, do you have two kids? Things like that. Um, and I acknowledge that that was odd because I never met him prior to the incident. So, Mr. Burgoyne was acting like he knew you. Mm-hmm. And you had never met Mr. Burgoyne prior to the night of this accident. That's correct. And overall, how did Mr. Burgoyne seem to you? Initially, when we first got to him, he seemed agitated. Um, and that was when he was pretty awake. And then in the ambulance was when it was varying. Um, oh, he just, he was asking odd questions or saying phrases that 
we're not very consistent, so. Shannon Roberto described how Burgoyne appeared to be in and out of responsiveness, and that he was confused and disorientated. She went on to recall that Burgoyne asked where he was and where he was going. Further testimony came from Alan Kosabik. Kosabik was a former co-worker and neighbour to the defendant. He said that he allowed Burgoyne to live with his family when Anilla was living away with her family in Colchester. The witness told the jury that the friends had spoken about Burgoyne's financial troubles as well as his job worries and said that quite frequently Burgoyne would pace around the house and at one point he made a false claim that Kosabik had been speaking about him behind his back. Alan Kosabik recalled the day of the crash and said that around 4am Burgoyne had come to his home and asked if Anilla was there. She was not, but Kosabik invited Burgoyne in and once again they spoke about Burgoyne's financial issues. This testimony was followed by Dr. David Rosemarin, who testified that he believed that Burgoyne was legally insane at the time of the crash. Speaking about the defendant, the doctor said, he did not intend to go the wrong direction and kill people or kill himself. He had been doing the same thing he had been doing for two days, which was driving around frantically trying to preserve his life trying to understand what he had to do next to be safe. Dr. Rosemarin stated that after the first crash, Stephen Burgoyne got out of the car, opened the door of the other vehicle and saw what he believed were mannequins burning. Under cross-examination, however, State Attorney Sarah George said that Burgoyne attempted to get away from the police by stealing a patrol car and that he remembered the crash as well as before and after it. She reminded Dr. Rosemarin that Burgoyne had said that he remembered driving into oncoming traffic and thought he should turn around but decided not to. According to Dr. Rosemarin, he believed that Burgoyne was suffering from bipolar disorder. My opinion uh, with reasonable medical certainty, psychiatric certainty, is that at the time of the crime... Uh, because Mr. Burgoyne was suffering from psychosis that was caused by him being manic in a, uh, in a, from the illness bipolar disorder. Uh, he had a particular kind of bipolar disorder. He had bipolar disorder with psychosis. It's, he had bipolar disorder with what we call rapid cycling, meaning six or more episodes a year. Uh, that at that time, uh, he both uh, lacked adequate capacity to uh, appreciate the criminality of, and, and lacked uh, adequate capacity to uh, conform his behavior with regard to the three charges he is charged with, which I evaluated to be uh, the uh, five deaths by second-degree murder, the um, stealing of the police car, and the reckless driving. Dr. Rosemarin told the jury that Stephen Burgoyne thought that the television had been sending him Morse code messages through the internet. 
Additionally, Burgoyne allegedly believed that his car radio was directing him through the rhythm of the music. Dr. Rosemarin stated that when Burgoyne went to the University of Vermont Medical Center, he sought somewhere safe to hide from the government because he now believed that the government was turning on him. According to the doctor who saw him at the hospital, Burgoyne had said that he was stressed about job and family problems, but explained that he was not suicidal or homicidal. Reportedly, there was no indication that he was delusional. When Dr. Rosemarin was being further cross-examined, he was asked whether Burgoyne may have exaggerated or faked his symptoms. State Attorney Sarah George questioned the witness regarding inconsistencies in parts of Burgoyne's recounting of the events that led up to the crash. Dr. Rosemarin rejected the theory that Burgoyne's actions that night may have been an attempt to kill himself, and once again said that he was doing everything he could to preserve his life. State Attorney Sarah George reminded Dr. Rosemarin that after the crash... Stephen Burgoyne had stolen a patrol vehicle and drove more than 100 miles per hour the wrong way on the interstate. She dryly remarked, That is not life-preserving. To which the witness replied, That is the reaction of a terrified, disorganised man. Dr. Rena Kapoor of the Yale School of Medicine also believed that Stephen Burgoyne was legally insane at the time of the crash. Dr. Kapoor was initially a prosecution witness but turned to testify for the defence. She said that at first she was sceptical of the insanity claims. Still after interviewing Burgoyne and reviewing other material, Dr. Kapoor came to agree that the defendant was legally insane. She stated... In my opinion, he did have a mental disease at that time, and that because of that mental disease he was both unstable and unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct and to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. Dr. Kabor diagnosed Burgoyne with a personality disorder with traits of borderline personality disorder and paranoid personality disorder. Carrie Crick of the Vermont State Police testified next. She told the jury that in the days leading up to the deadly crash, Stephen Burgoyne had received numerous phone calls from financial institutions and had called a bankruptcy lawyer who works exclusively with people who owe more than $10,000 in taxes. A day before the crash, Burgoyne had received at least eight phone calls from creditors. Carrie Crick had also examined Burgoyne's phone. Burgoyne had told a psychiatrist that he had received a Facebook message out of the blue from an old school friend called Chris Whitney. Burgoyne said to the psychiatrist that he had not spoken to Chris in years. He believed it was the government reaching out to him via Chris's Facebook. However, when the phone was examined, it turned out that it was Burgoyne who had initiated the conversation by telling Chris, You have a lot of hot-looking friends. Were you really in the movies? 
Furthermore, Burgoyne had told the psychiatrist that he had made a trip to Montpelier a day or two before the crash because he believed he received messages from his phone telling him to go there. As it transpired, there was no evidence that Burgoyne was ever there. Contradicting the experts hired by the defence, Dr Paul Cotton, a Burlington forensic psychiatrist, was next to testify. He stated that his opinion was that Burgoyne was not legally insane at the time of the crash and that he believed that Burgoyne knew his actions were wrong. Dr Cotton spoke about other things that Burgoyne had done in the run-up to the crash, which showed no signs of mania. For example, going to work, carrying out tasks and going for lunch with a friend. He diagnosed Stephen Burgoyne with an adjustment disorder with disturbance of mood behaviour, a condition that arises from identifiable stresses. Dr Cotton stated, I did not find data to support a mental disease. I use the disorder because of the fact it can describe, in my opinion, what he was experiencing and some of the stresses that led to his actions. Those stresses, the doctors said, were the child custody dispute and financial problems. Two further psychiatrists who spoke with Burgoyne reached the same conclusion and found no evidence of mania, paranoia or psychosis. While the defence contended that Stephen Burgoyne believed he was being spoken to by the government, Police Detective Sergeant Eric Jollymore said that when he examined Burgoyne's computer, he found no unusual Google searches and nothing relating to government conspiracies like one would expect. With all of the evidence presented, it was now time for closing arguments. Stephen Burgoyne had decided not to testify on his own behalf. Attorney Katims for the defence once again reiterated his belief that Burgoyne was legally insane at the time of the crash. Katims stated, Stephen Burgoyne wasn't suicidal. He wasn't rageful. He was psychotic. State Attorney George refuted this, ending her argument with, An accident did not kill these kids. Mr Burgoyne did. On the second day of deliberations, the jury reached a verdict. Respect to the second degree murder involving Mary Harris, Cyrus Shaw, Liam Hale, Janie Kazi, Eli Brookins. How did the jury find? Jurors would find Stephen Burgoyne guilty of five counts of second-degree murder. After the verdict was read out, one by one the parents of each victim held up photographs of their child and gave statements to the media. They said that they were glad this part of the tragedy was over and done with, and they could focus on commemorating the lives of their children. State Attorney Sarah George said that she was grateful for such a diligent and thoughtful jury and for the bravery of the loved ones who sat through the trial. She said, I want the community to know that these were children, 
They were kids. They were high school students. They were 15 and 16 years old and had really incredible personalities. Really big dreams. Really impressive talents. And it was all taken from them by one person. During the sentencing phase, the victims' families made impact statements to describe how Stephen Burgoyne's acts had left a hole in their hearts that would never heal. Liz Harris, the mother of Mary, said that it had been 1,052 days since her daughter was killed. To quantify what you took from me that day, there really are no words, she said. Mary's father, Daniel Harris, told Stephen Burgoyne that he had to forgive him for what he did, saying, Repent, undertone, and make an act of attribution, and understand what grace is, because that will set you free. Eli's father, Bob Brookins, told Burgoyne that he should be ashamed of himself while the video of Eli speaking about love he had for his family and friends played on a screen. In another video, photographs depicted the life of Liam Hale from when he was a baby until his high school days as the song Who You'd Be Today played. The victim impact statements were extremely poignant and moving, and at several points family members became so overcome with emotion that they needed to take a break. Before handing down the sentence... Judge Kevin Griffin described Stephen Burgoyne's crimes as horrific. He said it was stunning that more people were not killed or seriously injured. The judge said, Countless people have been victimised by Mr Burgoyne's actions, the crimes, and crimes that deserve a significant period of punishment. Burgoyne spoke briefly and apologised for his actions. I am so very sorry for my actions and which caused the accidents that October night. It was the first time Stephen Burgoyne had publicly said anything about what he did. The parents of the victims were given the opportunity to provide victim impact statements. The judge sentenced Stephen Burgoyne to 30 years to life in prison. In the state of Vermont, all murder convictions are automatically appealed to the Supreme Court. Burgoyne's defence counsel appealed for a new trial under the belief that Stephen Burgoyne did not get a fair trial in 2019. The appeal was submitted in January 2021. Defence attorney Josh O'Hara argued that the conviction should be overturned as the prosecution had undermined the insanity defence. Attorney O'Hara said that the defence had been assailed when the state's witness, Dr Paul Cotton, testified. O'Hara said, The trial court in this case greenlit an ambush when it allowed the prosecution to blindside Mr Burgoyne's defence with a new expert opinion on the tenth day of the trial after the defence had rested its insanity case. The Deputy State Attorney for Chittenden County, Andrew Gilbertson, said that there was no evidence of prejudicial testimony or any unfair legal procedure. 
The defence appealed, citing that the judge had acted improperly by not declaring a mistrial when Stephen Burgoyne's former partner Anilla Lawrence had stated something which they felt undermined their client's insanity defence. Anilla had testified that Stephen Burgoyne had said there were no wrong-way signs on the highway on October 8, 2016, which the Defence Council believed was the first time it was learned Anilla had spoken to Burgoyne about the incident. A mistrial was requested, but Judge Griffin denied the motion and told the jury to disregard Anilla's comment. Supreme Court justices found no error in the judge's ruling. They said the defence's contention that Stephen Burgoyne believed he was on a secret mission did not remove his culpabilities in the charges. The ruling states, Evidence of defendant's delusion that he was on a government mission to protect his family did not preclude the jury from concluding beyond a reasonable doubt that his mental state satisfied the wanton disregard intent element of second-degree murder. Stephen Burgoyne continues to serve his sentence in Vermont's Northwest State Correctional Facility while his lawyers attempt to appeal again. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening.